If you would, please take your Bible and, and meet me in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. Today I want to, um, as, in, in, as we continue our study through the book of Acts, I want to consider the, um, the spiritual practice of fasting. Um, I know that many of you are, are probably familiar or vaguely familiar, at least you've heard of fasting. Uh, Christian fasting can be defined as the voluntary um, the voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. The voluntary abstinence of food for spiritual purposes. And as I'll explain later in this message, uh, church, I just want you to know that I believe God is calling us to a church-wide fast. And I believe this call comes from this text that lays before us this morning. My assumption is that our individual fasting experiences are varied. Uh, some of us may be more familiar with fasting than others. Maybe you even fast on a, on a regular or semi-regular basis. Others of us, um, maybe on a, only a rare occasion, and then still others of us, maybe you've never fasted before. And I just want to say to you that that, that if that's you, please know that you're not alone. Uh, fasting is not easy. Fasting can be intimidating. Fasting can be somewhat mysterious. Uh, in his book on the spiritual disciplines, Donald Whitney says that in his experience as a pastor and as a seminary professor and uh, as a conference speaker, he writes that fasting is the most feared and the most misunderstood of all the disciplines. Fasting is one of those things that many Christians affirm, but relatively few practice. And the reason is not simply because we don't want to go without food, though that's part of it. That, that is, that's part of it. But, but truthfully, we go without food all the time, right? Like we'll work through breakfast or lunch and at times even dinner and we won't even think twice about it because we're just so preoccupied and we're busy we're distracted by something else um if we want to if, if we want to lose weight we might we might not eat we might skip a meal or not eat or, or we'll eat less frequently or we'll eat in in smaller portions sometimes even our emotional state causes us to lose our appetites and therefore abstain from food. So, so our general aversion to fasting, if that's a fair assessment, if I can call it that, our general aversion to fasting is probably because it, it, it involves fuller surrender of our lives to God, including the daily things like food and drink. It's like there's a general surrender to God, 
that I think we all affirm, just generally we, we, we want to surrender our lives. And then there's when God says, okay, surrender this and surrender that and surrender. And so I just think that, that, that one of the reasons maybe we struggle with fasting sometimes is because, because it, it, this involves a fuller surrender to God, a very specific one. And in some cases, just a very simple and, and, and daily one. Uh, whatever the reason may be, though, this is an area in which we can grow and where we can grow together as a church. Now, I want to say this up front. Today's text is, is not only about fasting. There, there is more here, and we'll cover that. Um, but, but here's the thing. This, this really, I never knew this before. Like, I never knew this before, and, and, um, and I didn't read it before, but I had the thought, like, God gave me the thought this week, and then I researched it, and it's true. Uh, this is the first time in the book of Acts where we read of the church fasting. Now, we're 13 chapters in, and we've read of the church uh, giving, praying, worshiping, evangelizing, discipling. This is the first time we see the church fasting. And interestingly, interestingly, uh, from this point on, uh, the church just embarks on this huge endeavor to take the gospel to the world. And this becomes the focus of the book of Acts. And so I just can't help but wonder if there's a connection between this being the first mention of fasting in the book of Acts and the rest of the book of Acts. So, so with this in mind, I just want that our hunger, may our hunger for God confirm our call to reach our community for Christ. Let's read this together. Just three verses today. Three verses that really set the stage for everything that follows. Acts 13, verses 1, and three, one through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we want to thank you for our time this morning in your word. Again, Lord, we just give you thanks for um, the youth camp last weekend and for the wonderful ways that you are shaping and forming those, um, our younger people and, and our youth leaders. Thank you for the way in which you use things like church services and winter camp and even the daily stuff of life to
to mold us and form us into the image of your son. Even now, Lord, we just want to pray for our, our, our youngest ones, our children downstairs uh, in the nursery and in their classrooms. And we're just thankful for your hand upon their lives and how you are revealing yourself and your truth to them, even now at a young age. And we'd ask that, that, would be, uh, that they would just be receptive to all that you have for them. Thank you for their teachers. Please bless their teachers. Thank you for their preparation this week as they've prepared these lessons. Thank you for the nursery care workers who, who serve us so diligently and so faithfully behind the scenes by, by tending to our youngest members. Bless them. And then, Father, would you continue your transforming work in us and in our lives even now in these moments as we, as we continue to consider your word here? We, uh, we want to hear your voice. Most of all, we want to hear your voice. We want to receive from your spirit. We want to see and know more of the Lord. And we want to be led by you in every way. So go before us and behind us and walk alongside us and, and make us receptive to all that you have for us in these moments. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the church, uh, the church that... A, the, the church in Antioch appears to have been a very healthy one, okay? Um, we know from chapter 11, you may remember when chapter 11, we first heard of this church. In chapter 11, it was established through the clear preaching of the Christian gospel. We know that the hand of the Lord was, uh, was upon those who preached the gospel, and, and we know that many uh, turned to the Lord uh, in repentance and faith. And news of this traveled to Jerusalem. It was about 300 miles away. News of this traveled from Antioch to Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas uh, to verify what was going on in Antioch. And so when Barnabas arrived, he too saw that God's grace was evident. God's grace was undeniable. People were coming to Christ in droves. So much so, you may recall that Barnabas then went to Tarsus to find his his friend Saul, and he and Saul brought Saul, so he brought Saul back to Antioch, and then he and Saul spent a year in Antioch together, discipling uh, the people before returning to Jerusalem with a, a financial gift uh, that the church in Antioch had, had given, returned to Jerusalem with a financial gift for the church, and then as we see at the end of chapter 12, they return again to Antioch. Barnabas and Saul. And so as we come to uh, chapter 13, we find five names listed. There, there's Barnabas, there's Simeon, there's Lucius, there's a Menean and Saul. And these men were ethnically and culturally diverse. Two were Jews, uh, two were Africans. Uh, as a matter of fact, the word Niger uh, literally means black-skinned, and so um, so these were these were these these were men from Africa. They were black-skinned, so we have this ethnic cultural diversity in the church at Antioch. Really, a beautiful thing that we just have these many cultures coming together. Uh, they didn't look the same way. They weren't from the same background, but they were united in Christ. They were one in the gospel. And then, by the way, you have this, this guy arist this guy named Menaean. He's an aristocrat who had been a close friend of King Herod. Now, now, you may recall that King Herod 
was not what we would call a godly man. Far from it. This is the King Herod, who this is Herod the Tetrarch, who um, who beheaded John the Baptist and who tried Jesus. And this man, Menaean, was a close friend of King Herod. And so somewhere along the line, this guy comes to faith in Christ. I just love this picture of what's going on in Antioch. Different cultures, different backgrounds, but all united in Christ, united in the gospel. And, and, they, and, and these five men were prophets and teachers, it says, meaning uh, that they were known as men who were gifted by God to declare God's truth as God revealed it. I believe the church was there uh, with them also, that the congregation at Antioch had gathered with these men to consider the next move, particularly to consider who from these five to send as missionaries from the church. And I believe this because when Barnabas and Saul come back from their first missionary endeavor in chapter 14, they again immediately gather with the entire church to, uh, to report all that took place. The church was unified in this effort, and, and these three verses that begin chapter 13 set the stage for everything that comes next in the book of Acts. And because, as I mentioned, because this is the first mention of, of fasting in Acts, I just can't help but wonder if fasting was the catalyst that set it all in motion. And if so then what can be learned about fasting? That's my question today. What can be learned about fasting as it applies to our lives and to our church? And I think at least four things, at least four things. First, fasting is an act of worship. Fasting is an act of worship. Verse 2 says, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, meaning this was a god centered fast they were praising and delighting in God God was the object of their worship and fasting was another means by which they worshiped their fast was not a you don't get the sense at all that their fast was a somber lifeless obligatory exercise but rather a heartfelt expression of love and longing for God Jesus once made this very point. John the Baptist's disciples approached him, remember, wanting to know why they fasted and why the Pharisees fasted, but Jesus' disciples didn't fast. And they asked Jesus, why is this? And it's a fair question. And Jesus answered by saying, listen, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. His point was that because he, he's the bridegroom, because he was presently with them in a very tangible and personal way, they had no reason to long for him as if he wasn't there. They could see him, they could hear him, they could touch him, they could be with him, because he was right there with them. 
But when he was crucified and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, the dynamics of the relationship changed in that Jesus isn't present with us today in the same way he was present with his disciples then. He's in heaven and he's awaiting the time of the Father's choosing when he will come again for the church and therefore today the church or the bride of Christ longs for her groom. Fasting then, when understood properly, is a worshipful expression of love and longing. And I think we should mention this, that because it is an act of worship, Jesus assumed we do it. In his Sermon on the Mount, for example, have you ever noticed that he spoke about giving and praying and fasting in the same way? When you give, he said. When you pray, he taught. And when you fast. It was not an if situation. It was a when situation. And the fact that he speaks of this together in Matthew chapter 6, the fact that he speaks of these things together, we can conclude that fasting should be, Jesus would want that fasting to be as much a part of our worship as giving and praying. When we fast, we direct our desires and appetites toward God and the things of God. We choose to temporarily abstain from other things, usually food, as a way of demonstrating our hunger for God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, declares the psalmist. Now, already the church at Antioch had, had tasted God's goodness, hadn't they? They'd already tasted his goodness in many ways. The many manifestations of his grace were visible to all. The hand of the Lord was with them. People were coming to faith in great number. I mean, they were tasting of God's goodness, and yet they wanted more. So they gathered, and they worshiped, and they fasted, and God responded. Which leads to my next point. Number two, fasting helps to hear from God. Now, I, I want to make sure, I'm going to say this again in, in just a bit, but I want to make sure that you hear that. Fasting helps to hear from God. I'm not saying that fasting places a demand upon God. But it helps to hear from God. It says, while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This happened while they were fasting. Notice. And it doesn't mean that God only speaks to us when we fast, of course, but that when we fast, 
And if you have fasted, I think you can attest to this. When we fast, it seems we're just a bit more attuned to his voice. Like we're really practicing active listening. Like we're leaning in to hear from God. And notice also that, that the Spirit of God said, Set these men apart for me first. Set them apart for me and then for the work to which I've called them. But, but God was saying, I want them to be set for me first. In other words, God wants our hearts first more than the task at hand. Did you hear that? God wants your heart more than he wants your cause. Because when God has your heart, the rest will follow. So set these men apart for me. And then for the work I've called them. Uh, in the book I alluded to earlier, Don Whitney lists 10 specific reasons to fast that are found and illustrated in Scripture. Uh, for example, the Bible urges fasting as a way to strengthen prayer, to seek God's guidance, to express grief, to seek deliverance or protection, to express repentance or, or, or the return to God, to humble oneself before God, to express concern for the work of God, to minister to the needs of others, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God, and to express love and worship to God. Ten ways, biblically, we see fasting being used. The point is that each of these things are purposeful. Like we're doing, we're fasting for one of, or maybe many of these purposes, and because we're being purposeful, or when we're purposeful, isn't it true that when we're purposeful in doing something, don't we tend to anticipate a response or an outcome? I think that's the case for this church here in Antioch as well. We find this sense of, of purpose and intent in Isaiah chapter 58, where we learn of two kinds of fasts one that God does not accept and one that he does accept. And the primary difference between the two is that the unacceptable fast is self-serving in nature. It's like the, 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 the person who fasts for the cause before fasting for God. Self-serving. And it kind of carries this idea of our fasting somehow makes God our genie in the bottle or obligates him or forces his hand. And if our motive is to somehow manipulate God into fulfilling our plans, if we're fasting for the cause primarily and not God and then the cause... God won't accept it. Because fasting is not an exercise in getting God on your side. The kind of fast that God readily accepts, however, is one that is 
uh, motivated by concern for the things that concern him. So when our hearts for break for the things or people upon God's heart, God is eager to respond. So in verse 11 of that chapter, Isaiah 58, he says that if you fast in this way, you will call upon me and I will answer. He says in verse 11 of that chapter, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire. In other words, God loves to respond to his people when they fast in this way. Fasting in this way thus helps us to hear from God. So the believers at Antioch were worshiping and fasting, seeking God and direction from God. And while they were worshiping and fasting, while they were doing this, the Holy Spirit answered them. But I love what happens next. So they're worshiping, they're fasting, they're seeking the Lord. God, we've seen so much goodness here. We've seen so much of your grace here. We've seen people turn from their sinfulness and they're finding forgiveness and life in Jesus. And God, we're not sure what's next. So we're seeking for, for your wisdom. We're seeking you, what's next. And, and, and then God responds and God answers them. And he says, this is what's next. I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul, and I want you to, I'm going to send them. That's what's next. And yet what I love here is they still continue in fasting and prayer. Because point number three, fasting focuses and intensifies prayer. So I was thinking about this. You know how certain flashlights can be adjusted from a wide beam to a narrow beam. You, know, you can turn the flashlight and adjust from a wide beam to a narrow beam. And when it's in wide mode, you see more things. Like the beam is more bright I mean, I mean the, the beam is more broad. It's more broad, but it's less bright. But when you turn that flashlight in narrow mode, it's not as broad, but it's very bright. You don't see as much, but what you do see, you see very clearly. And I think, in a sense... Fasting has a similar effect on prayer. Fasting helps to focus our prayers. Rather than praying generally in, in, in broad mode, in wide mode, rather than praying generally for anything and everything that comes to our minds, fasting has a way of narrowing the scope to a specific item or two. As if to say, God, this particular concern, this particular concern is so important to me that I'm going to put my other prayers on hold temporarily in order to, to amplify and intensify my ability to focus on this specific one. And it appears that something like this was happening among those in the church that day because even after hearing from the Holy Spirit, they continued to fast and pray. Like, okay, okay, God, set apart Barnabas and Saul. We got that. Tell us more about that. 
Like you've taken us from, from, from wide mode to narrow mode, and now tell us more about that. They pressed in with even more focus. And so they pray and they fast and they fast and they pray and they worship. And it's just a beautiful picture of finding God yet still pursuing God. Tozer calls this, uh, this, exact, uh, this, this experience of finding God yet still pursuing God. Tozer calls that the soul's paradox of love. And it's in that context that they laid their hands upon Barnabas and Saul and they sent them off with blessing, which leads to our fourth and final point, number four. The result of their fast was missions-minded ministry. Acts 13 is a turning point. From this point on, the focus clearly shifts to missions and to the widespread effort to take the gospel out into the world. The Spirit said to set apart Barnabas and Saul for him and for the work he'd called them. And the church obeyed. They laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And the laying on of hands, as you know, is just a way of saying we're with you. We're in this together. It's not just you, Barnabas and Saul. It's all of us. We're with you. We're sending you. Again, points to how the church, the whole church was involved, not just certain leaders, um, it was the church that did the sending. Uh, church, I think we need to realize that, that from this we can learn that some are sent. Some of us are specifically sent, but all of us are senders. I want you to imagine that worship gathering in Antioch that day. Imagine being part of a prayer meeting like that. Imagine uh, fasting together. Imagine it in real time. This will be hard for us, but try to imagine it in real time as it was happening. Not as we look back upon it and we see its effects. Because at that time, who knew what would become of it? Who knew? And yet, and yet this was the catalyst that moved God's people out into the world with the message of Jesus. It was in Antioch where the church was moved in a new way to, to uh, a new way under the Spirit's direction. The world was different after this prayer meeting than it was before. You realize that? In fact, we are here today uh, worshiping the Lord this morning in large part because the worship of that church led to its witness abroad. This relationship between a church's worship and a church's witness is not to be overlooked. Henry Martin, who was a, uh, a missionary to India and Persia, said the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions, and the nearer we get to Jesus the more intensely missionary we must become. Tim Keller writes, true enjoyment of God must lead to mission, to helping others see the beauty we see. Because God never draws us in except to send us out. 
to serve and reach others. John Piper referred to this event in Antioch, these are, these are his words, as the fasting that changed the course of history. Let me read you a little bit of what he said. It is almost impossible to overstate the historical importance of this moment in Antioch in the history of the world. Before this word from the Holy Spirit, there seems to have been no organized mission of the church beyond the eastern seacoast of the Mediterranean. Before this, Paul had made no missionary journeys westward to Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, or Spain. Before this, Paul had not written any of his letters, which were all the result of his missionary travels beginning there, beginning here. This moment of prayer and fasting resulted in a missions movement that would make Christianity the dominant religion of the world empire within two and a half centuries and would yield currently 2.3 billion adherents of the Christian religion today with a Christian witness virtually in every country of the world. And 13 of the 29 books of the New Testament were the result of the ministry that was launched in this moment of prayer and fasting. And then he asks this question. Question I'm asking you. So I think, is it fair to say that God was pleased to make worship and prayer and fasting the launching pad for a mission that would change the course of history. And is there not a lesson in this for us? So let me, let me share just some of what God has shared with me this week. in terms of application. As I've been reflecting upon, upon these three verses this week, God has impressed upon me a call to fast. Specifically to fast and pray, first for Him, and then to really seek Him concerning how he wants to send our church out into our community in the power of the Holy Spirit with the gospel of Christ. I'm therefore calling for a church-wide fast by which we can hunger for God and for God's purpose for us in this place, in this place, and this time in history, I ran it by the board, and together we agree that this is a great way for us as a church to apply this passage and step out in faith. Obviously, we can't go back and take part in, in, in their fast, but we can learn from it and take part in a fast of our own. And so the plan for now, the plan for now is to set aside one day per month for at least the next three months, beginning on Wednesday, February 6th, that's two Wednesdays from now, beginning on Wednesday, February 6th, and continuing on the first Wednesday of the month, uh, of the months that lead up to Easter. 
Everyone who wants to would fast during that day, that Wednesday, and we'll send out reminders for you. We'll send out some information for you. Everyone who wants to would fast during the day, and then we'll meet together here this, in the evening to pray together, to come together and pray together uh, for our immediate neighborhood and how we might bring the message of Jesus to our community. Because in our desire to build community for the cause of Christ, one of our vision points is to reach the people of Tree Lake Village and beyond. Church, stay with me on this. We're being very specific. If we believe, and I do believe this, when you talk to those who are involved in why this church is here, why we built this church here, there was a sense of call to this neighborhood. And so one of our uh, vision points is to reach the people of this neighborhood. This neighborhood's called Tree Lake Village. To reach the people of this neighborhood and beyond. Now, now, now the church in Antioch, their, their situation was a little bit reversed maybe than ours. Like, like they had already been reaching their immediate community as we saw in chapter 11. Now they were going beyond. For us, we've already been reaching beyond. In fact, I think our, our global missions emphasis, our emphasis on, on global missions is exemplary. We've already been, been reaching beyond. We want to continue to reach beyond. We want to continue to grow in reaching beyond but is it fair to say that we have room to grow in reaching our local community too? And so let's fast and pray for our neighbors here and for what God might want to do with us. I'm asking you to join me in this. I'm asking you to go a day without food so that every hunger pang would become an expression of your hunger for God and for his work we go a day without food and, and just seek direction with us from the Lord we'll, I want to talk to, to our students to, you know, to our, our young people to our junior high and high school students I want you to know this is for you too and, and will you go a day without food to help cultivate an appetite for God and, and God's work in your, in your life. I, I just want to speak to families, parents, do this as a family, maybe even just skipping a meal together as a family, like still meeting at the dinner table, but skipping the meal would provide an opportunity to talk through this as a family. Now, some of you, I, I get this, some of you may need to eat for legitimate health reasons. I totally get that. That's totally okay. But although you, you may be, if that's, if that's you, you may be unable to participate in this way, going without food, maybe you can fast in another way and still participate. Maybe for you it's foregoing TV or foregoing the internet or foregoing social media, foregoing your hobbies or, or something similar as a way to, to express your desire for God and for what God wants to do. One Wednesday a month to worship and fast and pray together as a church.
that okay? Fasting out of a hunger for God and hope for the world. The congregation at Antioch became the staging ground for global missions. They didn't even know what they were on the verge of. And so, may our hunger for the Lord and our hope in Christ have a similar effect upon us. More details to come. Amen. Father, we're very, very thankful for the very practical ways that you impress your word upon us and you apply it to our lives. And I would just pray that as a church that you would uh, unite us in this effort. We don't want it to be man-made. We don't want it to be of human origin. We believe it is of the Spirit. I believe that. And so we pray that you'd unite us in the Spirit, that you would bring us together to, to fast and to pray, and specifically to pray for what's next concerning your outreach into our immediate community. Give us wisdom and direction. Give us joy and, uh, and joy in our worship um, and a great sense of togetherness make our hearts to beat and even to break for the things that, that break your heart uh, so that we can fall more in line with your will and for what you're doing in our lives and even through our church. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.